0: Hey, everybody. This week on Coders, we are going to be talking about everything Apple announced this week. So join us right after this. Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. Telecomcareers.com. Hey, everybody. This week on Coders, we are talking everything Apple. Uh, Apple, of course, had their big announcement this week, uh, several big announcements. So let's let's break a few of these things down. First of all, we've got the Apple Watch. And what we saw really with the Apple Watch was uh, some new colors, some new bands, uh, Hermes bands, and some other things. So that's great for consumers. But, of course, what developers want to know is what's going on with watchOS. And I think the big thing here... And this is a good lesson for developers to learn when dealing with Apple: is that if you recall, when Apple Watch first came out, you could write applications for it, but really the applications were just extensions of an iPhone app. They were essentially like a second screen, or uh, if you're familiar with the Microsoft, some of the things that Microsoft does, where you've got sort of like a companion app, so you can see maybe the the map of GTA as you move around it, or, or Halo, or whatever. Um, it was sort of like that. These were not actually taking advantage of the hardware, the components, and they certainly were not running natively on the watch itself. So what's important to understand is that when the watch first came out, developers were basically tied to the iPhone in a very distinct way in that they could, they were just using this as a secondary display and, and a basic interaction method, right? Now you've actually got access to the hardware. Well, what does that mean? It means that you can do things like trigger the Taptic Engine that means that you can do things like make noises. You can, you know, there's a lot more interactivity that you can do and apps can run natively on the watch. And the important thing to think about that is you've got very strict memory constraints. Um, You've got a processor that obviously is tied to a battery that's fairly small. And so you have to be careful about those things. If, uh, If anyone remembers the old hand warmer apps, which I think Apple has pulled all of those, what they would do is they would crank up your processor to a point where it would get warm. This is like iPhone 3GS era. I remember a couple of these things that we saw that actually would just hammer the processor in order to warm it up so it was supposed to warm up your hand. Well, guess what? That also warms up the battery and it's a huge drain on battery life. So Apple doesn't want apps like that and they're not going to approve apps like that. But what we're seeing is is a slow, steady progression of enabling abilities on the Apple Watch. Now, we don't know what's going to be in store for the next Apple Watch. I'm pretty sure there will be a front-facing camera, like a FaceTime camera. Um, and again, with those sorts of considerations, you have to think about, well, what new things do I have to code for and what new frameworks and what new resources will Apple make available and open up? So the SDK for the Apple Watch is you know, still it's its own thing. It's it's still a fairly primitive thing. Watch OS is only at 2.0, um, although it moved very quickly through the through the development cycle. But you know this is a new product category for Apple, and and as many people have pointed out, it's the first one that was developed without any Steve Jobs involvement whatsoever. Um, and the way that Apple does these things is it casts it's sort of like casting a line into the water. It's like fly fishing. You cast a line into the water and you pull it tight. And that strains developers that that really we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute with the iPad Pro, because there's an important point that uh, Ben Bajarin made on Stratechery. But the idea is that they cast the line so far out that it'd be very difficult for competitors to catch up to that point. But then they pull that line really tight. And people who are invested in Apple's ecosystem, or uh, are just Apple fans, or fans of the design and you know their their ethos there, those people are going to go ahead and swim to that point. Right? Over time, they kind of reel that in, and the tools get better and better and better, and the, uh, the features get better, and and your options get better. So, all of that to say. Watch OS is still very primitive. Uh, there's still a fairly small number of people using it. I mean, they're hardcore users. They love the Apple Watch, but you know, it's still a pretty small market. I think the biggest thing to think about is in the health space, because Apple is really positioning this as a health and fitness boon. And perhaps the most powerful presentation of the day was the fact that expecting mothers can hear their baby's uh, heartbeat right on their wrist with a, you know, they got a secondary device that does the ultrasound thing, but they can actually hear that on there and they can track moms with contractions, everything. Doctors can see all of that live health data on their wrist. So when you start thinking about it like that, when you start thinking about this instant access to data, the watch becomes a more compelling product. Um, so that's the Apple watch for consumers. Really mostly what it means is, uh, better apps, and a few more straps and and colors or whatnot. But really for developers, this is really huge stuff that we're gonna be spending the next year working out until Apple comes out with a new one. So on to the big thing, which was the iPad Pro. Now the iPad Pro, they were showing uh, some of the iOS 9 features that are gonna be on the iPad. Uh, If you remember at WWDC, Apple talked about how with iOS 9 on the iPad Air 2, Uh, they would have certain features that were available that would not be available on older iPads. Now, iOS 9 will run on almost all of the iPads out there, the second gen on up. All of the minis will run iOS 9, but not all of them will get things like the split screen view. And I remember seeing this and thinking iPad Air, okay, well, that's good. You know, it's got this screen and you could do a split screen or whatever. But on the iPad Pro, because it's so huge, Split screen makes a lot of sense, and it's the way that a lot of computer users use their computers, right? You'll have a Word document and an Excel spreadsheet next to each other and maybe dragging things between them or drawing program and a page layout program. Um, I think this looks at the iPad in a new way, uh, and obviously, a lot of people are making comparisons to the Surface Pro. Um, but Apple's doing an interesting thing here that Microsoft is not. M- Microsoft and Apple are taking two different paths here. On Microsoft's side, they kind of want one operating system to rule them all, and it will just form itself to the device. So that goes for Windows Phone, that goes for Surface, that goes for PCs. So if you're running Windows 10 and you deploy an app in the Microsoft Store, the theory is that you can run that app on any of those devices. Uh, Apple's doing a little bit different. You know, you've got the Mac operating system and you've got the iOS, right? So for the iPad and the iPhone, this is a distinctly different operating system. And now they've actually got a watch OS and they've got a TV OS. And we'll talk about the TV in just a minute. Um, So instead of one operating system that morphs, they've got multiple operating systems that interconnect in interesting ways and sort of hook into each other in different ways. And we're going to talk about some of those hooks in just a second because some of this is really, really exciting stuff for developers. but, the, uh, but in the iPad Pro, you've got to think about split screen, multitasking, video overlays. These are, uh, some of these things are going to require uh, some work for developers you know, to enable those features, like video overlays. So to be able to watch the video, sort of like picture-in-picture, picture, um, you know, you need to put that in your code. Now, the, another thing that, to think about with the iPad Pro is the iPad Pro Pencil, right? So the pencil that actually comes with, or it doesn't come with it, it's $100 extra, uh, a lot of people were comparing this to the Wacom Cintiq um, and, you know, tablets that have had a pencil. But look, here's the thing. This is actually a very high-tech device. Uh, I was talking to some people who were there at the event and, and played with it. Um, there's a lot of technology that's actually been put into the pencil. This is part of the reason why it's $100. And developers who are writing apps for the iPad Pro are going to need to access those features right so you know not always I, mean, I think this is a very specific case where you've got designers architects those folks are going to use this thing um, in in specific ways so the pencil is not just a dumb stylus it's not just a stick with a little rubber tip on the end it actually has a lot of intelligence about how it's positioned and the pressure and whatnot um, but But Jaron points out over at Stratechery that there is a bit of a developer problem on the iPad as a platform, okay? Uh, The iPhone, obviously, huge success, right? You have some amazing apps for the iPhone. But what's been interesting is that your iPhone, you carry it with you all the time, you know, and you're using apps all the time because you have this with you all the time. So there's an immediate benefit to people who say, oh, you know, I I need a mobile phone. I've got this smartphone, so I'm going to buy apps for it, right? What we're seeing with the iPad is, I mean, look at the sales, right? The sales have plummeted since its release. So Apple's trying to figure out, well, how can we you know, boost sales? But more importantly, what is the advantage for developers to create a really great iPad apps? And for a lot of smaller developers, there's not a whole lot of compelling reasons to do it. And, and bottom line, money. Uh, And so Ben makes this point that developers have a problem in that Apple's app store does not allow trial apps. You know, there's this kind of clunky way that people get around that by saying, okay, here's a free app. But if you want to buy if you want extra features, you got to buy these in-app purchases. Um, I don't know about you, but like if if I'm using a photo editing program, I don't want to unlock a selector tool or a certain brush or a color or whatever with an in-app purchase, that just seems ridiculous and it seems nickel and diming. I would much rather have something, be able to try it for 30 days, and then at the end of that trial say, hey, do you want to buy the full version? It's $14.99. You can't do that on the App Store. Also, there's no upgrade path. So if you get the free version, you can't go to a paid model. They actually have to have two separate apps. So you've got this free, and they always put free in the the title, and then you've got the paid version, and maybe they put pro or whatever in it. Um, you know, that's just problematic for developers because here's the thing, why would you spend so much money and time creating these beautiful iPad apps when you're going to have people who are used to a mobile store where they paid 99 cents or $1.99 and they complain about the $1.99 price point, um, when you're talking about a significant investment in development, right? So developing for the iPad is, is somewhat different than the iPhone um, so if you're going to make, you know, you can do a universal app, of course. But again, the bottom line is the developers have to eat, um, and they have to pay their people. So that's been a big problem uh, for people, and I think it's the reason why we saw Microsoft and Adobe demonstrate iPad Pro apps. You know, you, you didn't see Pixelmator up there. You didn't see some of these other. I mean, never mind the fact that, of course, they don't necessarily let all of these third-party developers in on their hardware. Uh, before it's announced, but we all kind of knew what was coming. Uh, the rumors were pretty much accurate down the line this year, um, and I think the other big thing, and a lot of developers have talked to me about this in the past, which is that, and, and I like the way that Ben puts this. He says Apple has disintermediated the relationship between developers and their customers, and what that means is that Apple is kind of the go-between uh, between those two. Now you can, you know, in an app, you can put a feedback button in, you can, you know, you can do all these other things, but look users are not going to use that, right? But the majority of people think of the app store as the go-to source for the information on your app. So the fact that, and, and this is a big, big problem, people will leave feedback for an app in the comments and reviews versus contacting the developer. Now, you can go in the app store and it says, go to the developer's website, and if they're smart, then they've got a good website. They've got an easy-to-access form for feedback and whatnot. The developers that I know who get feedback Absolutely cherish it because it is so rare to get good feedback from people that actually helps a product improve. So, think about this for a minute. If you're developing for the iPad and specifically the iPad Pro, which is now becoming a computer, I mean, they're trying to make this as much like your laptop as possible. If you have to invest a lot of money and time in creating this beautiful app, and then you release it on the store. And let's say, you know, whether it's paid or free and you do in-app purchase, whatever, that doesn't matter. The thing is, is that if users can't easily tell you, hey, this thing's bothering me and it would be great. And that could be some incredible feature. If they can't easily do that and Apple's sort of standing in the, in the way there, then that's a problem. Right. Uh, and it's something that developers, like I said, have had a lot of frustration with in the past that the app store becomes this place where people go to complain versus the actual developers. So I think that there's something that Apple could do there. And I think that part of the reason that the iPad isn't selling very well is, and and numerous people have told this to me, part of the reason is that they don't see a lot of compelling apps for it. Uh, I know many, many people who have an iPad that's collecting dust. Um, I I know that my iPad is primarily used by my daughter to watch YouTube videos. so And that's only because it has a bigger screen. so I think that Apple's worried about sales, right? And so their idea was, well, let's make it bigger. Let's make it more like a computer. Let's add this stylus thing. You know, basically let's copy the Surface Pro because that seems to be doing pretty well. And they addressed a lot of the concerns that people who were buying Surface Pros um, but wanted to get an iPad had, right? So things like palm rejection. And in fact, it's important to note uh, for developers that it's not so much palm rejection. Uh, you may have seen this. If you're writing with the pencil, You can actually rest your hand on the screen and you can draw and it will detect the stylus and it will ignore your palm. Well, the reason for that is, is that it's just detecting the stylus. It doesn't have anything to do necessarily with palm rejection. It's still going to see the palm on the on the tablet itself. It's just ignoring that input. Uh, And that distinction was made by someone earlier. Uh, So iPad Pro, just to wrap up, it's one of those things where if you have been working in the iPad platform already, then you're in really great shape uh, because Apple's done a lot of things on the dev side and the design area to make sure that your apps can scale up and down. And especially if you've got a universal app, you know, kind of how that works. Um, But I think that we still have a problem with creating stuff. uh, That's just really amazing, you know, and you've got Adobe, you've got Microsoft. They have the pockets to be able to make these great things. But if Apple really wants a renaissance with the iPad, they need to make the developers m- happier to create things for it, and I think that uh, free to upgrade or free to paid upgrade path is really the way to do that. Okay, so now let's go on to the iPhone six, and of course, with the iPhone six, a lot of people were going crazy about the fact that there's now a pink one, you know, or a rose-colored one, as Apple calls it. Uh, the uh, the iPhone six has not changed in form factor. Uh, but what it did add were was is a new camera that is really fantastic it takes 4k video but unfortunately we're still stuck with the old problem of not enough memory in the base model we still got a 16 gigabyte model which just, just shouldn't happen anymore um, when you're talking about 4k video you're talking about eating up several gigs for just a few minutes of video also it's a 12 megapixel camera in and of itself so just taking photographs is going to be kind of uh, kind of memory eating shall we say um so that's something to consider i think as well but the the cool thing is is that you're going to have a lot more resolution so anybody who's making photo apps out there rejoice this is a boon for you guys because the the better image that you have to work with the better the the happier consumers are going to be about that Um, but the big thing here is force touch which is now 3d touch okay And what 3D Touch is, it allows you to do things like Apple use terms like peak and pop and whatnot. And here's what this is, essentially. If you tap on your screen right now, something happens, right? Now you'll be able to push a little bit harder and it'll detect that and push harder still. It's sort of like clicking down. Uh, And if you've used the new MacBooks, it's a very, very, it's the exact same thing there where you tap or on the watch, it's a similar thing where it's that force tap where you, push in a little bit harder and it can detect, you know, t- basically sort of three levels of interaction. Now, a tap, a press, and a lo- and a harder press. Now, big deal, right? This seems like, uh, you know, that seems cute. And the, the demonstration was a little weird where it was like, yeah, you can easily access, even from the home screen, you, you can push down, and you can access the selfie camera very quickly, right? Instead of fumbling around with the camera and then turning it around and all that, you can actually push down harder and it will pop up a little dialogue. And one of the options will be selfie camera. So you can immediately take a selfie without having to, you know, waste two more clicks or whatever. And you may say, okay, well, that you know, that seems nice. Also, they show the peak aspect is if you push, you'll see a preview of something. So, like an email, you'll see that you've got some emails, you can push on that. And it will show you a preview of that email. Same thing with uh, Safari websites or other things, which is great. That sounds cool. I think here's the thing. And this is uh, Stephen Trotten Smith. And if you don't follow Steve Trotten Smith on Twitter, I highly recommend it. He's a developer in San Francisco. And he was really poring over all of this stuff. In fact, I saw last night they managed to jailbreak the watch. And they were monkeying around with some of the, uh, some of the frameworks in there. But this was great. Uh, this is from yesterday. It says, 3D Touch seems to allow you to quick look app links presenting other apps' view controllers inside your app. And as he points out, it seems transformative for iOS. That really is transformative. And th- there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, uh, users will now be able to 3D Touch, in other words, push in harder, and actually access certain features from just about anywhere in your app. And that's really great because let's say, uh, you know, you've you've got a travel app and then you've got some and this is a travel app that just has lists of points of, of contact or, or, or points of interest. OK, and then you've got a routing app over here that actually helps people get from point A to point B. Well, those two may be separate things, but you could be in the point of interest app, push in and actually get a thing that says find directions to get here. Right. So this is this is part of Apple's way to get around the fact that all of these apps are sandboxed and let's go back a little bit and think about how iOS developed in this way. One of the key differentiators in iOS versus Android was the fact that it's very locked down and they do that for security reasons. And The reason why you don't see any malware on iOS is that an app itself cannot impact the operating system It cannot affect another app. You know, the only way that they can even interact is essentially just through a URL scheme. So it's a link to the other thing. So you can launch the other app and you can add in, you can throw in a little bit of text so you can pass a few parameters over. But if you think about that, there's really no way. I mean, you you can't do some kind of a weird injection thing or whatever. It's almost impossible for you to mess up another app using that linking scheme. Apple has taken that linking scheme and kind of taken it one step further. And now with 3D Touch, you're going to be able to actually access those things without leaving the app that you're in, but be interacting with something else. I mean, that's going to take a little bit of time for us to work out. But I think what we're going to see is some really, really amazing stuff where Apple or apps are able to interact in ways that they never were before. Um, with Android, you can have other apps that intermingle. You can have uh, you can install things that change the operating system in fundamental ways and whatnot. But you can't really do that on iOS. Um, I will say one thing that's kind of funny about that, and this is more about if you think about Microsoft, uh, the Windows Mobile, and those live tiles and whatnot, right? Somebody who was at the event said that on the iPad Pro, uh, the spacing of the teeny little the icons app icons were so tiny and very spaced apart because you've got this gigantic piece of glass and i think it's well beyond time that apple allowed us to resize app icons i would love to be able to go on here and instead of having to cognitively remember what screen was this on what i would love to have certain apps be really big and maybe some apps be smaller or the the default size or whatever but like usually when i'm popping in my phone there's like three or four things that I'm doing all the time. And it'll be great to see those as big buttons. And then the other ones as smaller buttons. And the folders thing requires your brain to remember where things are. And that's the opposite of what computers should be doing for us. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it'll happen. I keep waiting for it to happen. They're, they're kind of preparing us for scalable vector graphics for everything. Um, so it's not like it couldn't easily be done for the most part. Um, I'm not really sure. but maybe. The iPad Pro will push them in that direction. Um, And back to the iPhone, and this also impacts the iPad because you've got more multitasking. If you look at this stuff, what they're doing is trying to make this more like a desktop operating system, right? All the conveniences of right-clicking and being able to access submenus and all that sort of thing, I mean, that's what this is, right? We're giving more power to the users, and we're giving more power to the developers to make richer, more aware apps. One thing that I thought was interesting was that we did not see a whole lot about the context. Um, And what I mean by that is with iOS 9 at WWDC, they talked about uh, a lot of features in iOS 9 that essentially make your iPhone work a lot like Google Now would work, right? It's context-aware. So when you wake up in the morning, if you normally work out in your home gym, And you plug in your headphones, it immediately will open up the music app for you. Or if you get in your car, it'll open up the, let's say, use the NPR app every time you drive. So it'll open that up or Spotify or whatever. From what I hear from people who have been playing with iOS 9 for a while, that feature doesn't work great. Um, It's not Google Now, in other words. It's not going to warn you if traffic conditions change that you're going to be late to your next appointment. Um, There's a lot lacking And it seems that the reason is Apple has decided to go very, very, very strict on privacy. Um, So as they mentioned numerous times, all of the context-aware information that your iPhone records will not go to Cupertino. It stays on your phone. Well, I mean, I think we all know that the more data points you have, the better decisions your algorithms can make. So they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot in that way because Google has already told people, "Look, here's the bargain. You give us your data, we give you a bunch of power. And that's what they're doing. Google now actually achieves that because it you know, it knows so much about you, your email, your calendar, your location, all of these other things. So there is a point to that data mining. Uh, even if it's a little maybe a little creepy sometimes, I think that the the idea is that we've all sort of just decided, well, look, that's the bargain that we're making here is that if I want that power, I mean, somebody has to know what to do with that data, right? And it's not like they're going through and somebody's trying to stalk you or whatever. It's a, these are things that are made to make business decisions, intelligent decisions about what needs to happen on your phone. Um, so it concerns me a little bit that what looked like Google Now is really going to be sort of a, a shortened version of Google Now and it's not going to have all the power. And I think a lot of people are going to be a little uh, disappointed with iOS nine and and the context awareness that it's supposed to bring, um, to that end, though, speaking of the end consumer, one thing that people are going to have to learn or be trained on, really, and and no one could really figure out how to train them on this. So I'm going to be interested to see how many users actually adopt three D touch because it's not intuitive. Say, oh, you know, I've been tapping on this thing for five six years now. Now all of a sudden, I. I push in and it took me a few minutes. As a matter of fact, when we went to the Apple store with my kids, uh, when the MacBooks first came out and we went and we wanted to try that force, it was called force touch at the time. um, We went in there and we actually had to get a a Apple retail person to come over and explain kind of like, okay, wait, how do you, how do you get the double, you know, the double push there, the like deeper push in, how do you get that to work? Um, It's not intuitive really. So it's not like a two finger click, which I still to this day teach people how to two finger click on a a Mac trackpad because that's how you right click. And they're always like, how do I, you know, how do I copy and paste real easily? Like you can two finger click, right? And they're like, what are you talking about? So the multi-touch gestures, I think most consumers really don't know all the multi-touch gestures that can happen. Um, And speaking of multi-touch gestures, that's another thing that we're seeing as uh, like on the iPad Pro you're going to be able to do some things that like different gestures and whatnot, that will do other things. Um, But again, you know, you do some of these things and as developers, you have to weigh the decision. Is this interaction worth training, having to train my users to do something right? Uh, A lot of times what I've seen people do paper by 53 is a great example, uh, which I kind of feel bad for them because their primary sales are through their pencil. And now Apple has a, Same name, pencil. uh, But that's just another one of the ways Apple works. Um, But with paper, you can take two fingers and go like this in sort of a circular motion and rewind the drawing that you did. And so if you want to undo, you just go like that, undo, undo, and it goes back several levels like that. Um, But they show you that in a little intro video that you can't skip when you first launch the app. I've missed the days when Apple used to have a sort of intro. I remember in the classic Mac operating system, when you would first launch a new Mac, it would take you through how to click and drag, how to drag and drop, how to do all these different things. There was a little tutorial. The iPhone doesn't do that. Um, when the iPhone, you set it up, you go through and you get an iCloud account and there's all this other stuff. So Apple has a bit of battle here to train people on how to do this 3D touch stuff. And also as developers, you're going to have to think about how do I use this 3D touch stuff? Okay, and then lastly, we're running out of time here, Apple TV. Um, With the Apple TV, I think we're going to have to see how this goes. I mean, Apple TV is not a huge product category for Apple right now. They've always said it's a hobby. It's obviously no longer just a hobby. Um, But a couple of things. First of all, memory is going to be severely constrained, right? it looks like apps, you know, at a certain point are going to be kind of streamed. Uh, in other words, they can be locally cached, but then if something else comes in and you haven't used Angry Birds in a year, you know, it'll it'll go away, and then next time you want to go use it, it'll have to sort of redownload, right? Um, and that's, I think that's kind of understandable, and I think that's really where we're going now anyway. Like, what isn't streamed anymore anyway? Uh, your data lives in the cloud, you know, your, your entertainment comes from the cloud, uh, very little they're trying to get away from everything being stored locally anyway so that's going to be interesting to see uh for developers it obviously behooves you to make very very light apps um and of course let's let's not kid ourselves the apple tv is not a console uh the games for it will be pick up and play very much like amazon fire um but here's the thing for developers and developers i've spoken to who who are looking at developing for the apple tv you again have that thing where the sdk is new so tv os is very very new, so you gonna be dealing with a lot of bugs, a lot of weirdness, um, and then there's a lot of things, new features for instance, and the, the big one that I remember is the parallax, so as you're browsing content, you see this thing and then it you can wiggle it like that, so as you move your remote, you, it's like picking up a box and you can move it around. Well, you've got to create art for that, you've got to create assets for that, you've got to, you know, there's all this stuff now that has to happen um, that developers are going to have to do, both design and code wise, to keep up with that. More importantly, You can't just develop an app with one code base and then easily deploy it to Watch or Apple Apple TV. Those are going to require very different workflows and actually require different binaries. Um, So that's something to watch out for. At any rate, we're going to keep an eye on Apple TV. And once uh, some people have had a chance to use it, we're going to have somebody on the show and we're going to talk about what it's like to develop for TV OS. But uh, until that time, we will talk about something other than Apple next week. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys next week and every week after that. So this has been Coders for September 11th. And thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Coders is a production of RCR TV News. To reach Victor Agreta Jr. Or to suggest a show topic for Coders, you can reach him on Twitter at SuperPixels. For all the latest news on wireless code and the whole world of wireless, check out RCRwireless.com.